few times in life, in my life anyway, where I've ever asked myself the right question. And this was the question, where have you been the most fulfilled, engaged, and happiest? What was going on in your life when those emotions were in place? I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo. I'm Alex Del Sordo, and we have we have just Eddie. It's Kevin Sauer. Needed to France. Eric Murray. It's Mahi Drysdale. It is Sir Matthew Henson. Thank you for being here. I'm Alex Del Sordo's choice, and this is another season of podcast interviews. And we've been doing this a long time. Season four, episode one, and it's no it's no mystery who we have. Our first guest of the year is. If he's not the most successful, he is one of the most successful collegiate coaches in the history of rowing. He's been doing it for over 60 years. And just like what, a couple of weeks ago, it was formally announced that he's he's leaving the sport of rowing as a as a coach for a program. He will be staying in the sport. We know that uh, you can't just leave it. You can't just say goodbye and, and not be there again. Uh, I have Steve Gladstone. And this is the first time after hundreds of interviews that I like, I actually had no idea where to start. I, I, I don't know what to talk with this guy. And I, and I slept on it. I was nervous. I was anxious, sort of a fanboy in a way. And it dawned on me, there's hundreds of minutes of this guy's interviews. People know his success. They know his story. Let's get to know him as a person. I want to know <laughs> what makes this guy tick. So here we are, Steve, thank you for being here uh, for episode one, season four. Yeah, uh, it's it's my pleasure, and I'm glad you did the add-on. No, I'm not in any way moving away from rowing. I'm no. stepping down as the head coach at Yale. Yeah, uh, no, uh, you know one of your one of your athletes, uh, Mike Wallen, is near and dear to my heart. And he said to me, he said, "Yeah, I heard the news. I found out, and then I chatted with him, and you, he saw you at the Golden Oars recently." Mm-hmm. And he said, "There's no way in hell this guy's leaving the sport of rowing. So don't 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 think that this guy's done. He's he's staying right. in." Right. Uh, but I do ask one question that I've asked every single interview and I do got to get it out. I got it out, out of the way is how old were you and where were you when you took your first rowing stroke? Ah, oh, it was spring of 1955 oh, on the Housatonic river. Uh, uh, and that, that was, uh, Kent, Connecticut. I got, so I got to like, what, what now, now I, I consider myself a rowing nerd and a buff history buff, but 1955, what boats were you rowing at Kent um, in 1955? Uh, it, they're, they're most likely they were Pococks. Yeah. The wooden shells. They're wooden shells. And at, you know, at that particular point in rowing history in this country, literally everybody was rowing Pocock boats. There yeah. might have been a few exceptions in Massachusetts. There was a, a boat builder that imitated Pocock boats. His name was Garofola in Worcester, but it most likely was a Pocock boat. I love it. I love it. So what? why did you want to row? So what, what brought you to that sport in 1955? Uh, you know, at the school, the school was on a river. The school was founded by a Holy Cross monk who was a coxswain at Columbia in the late 1850s, excuse me, late 1880s. Uh, and actually, uh, his name was uh, Frederick Herbert Sill, 
or Father Sill. He was a Holy Cross monk, Anglican, that is. And he'd been a coxswain at Columbia. And he was actually, I found out much, much, much later, was one of the people that founded the IRA. Whoa, whoa. Yeah. Oh. So he put the school on the river because he loved rowing. And, and then, wow. at, at that particular time in the school's history, just about, I would say, 70 to 80% of the people rowed. And there were three, there were three clubs. There was the Algos for the mountain behind the school, the Macedonians for the valley, and the Housatonic, the Housies, as we call them, uh, for the river. And within these clubs, each club had three or four eights. Uh, so the little, little boys, like myself, were in the early, you know, we're in the lower boats in the clubs. And eventually, if you stuck with it and loved it, you'd end up, your goal was as a junior, uh, junior or senior, make the first or second boat. And those are the boats that raced uh, other, other schools. But it was a rowing school. Just did, you guys, did you guys race uh, W&L out of, out of D.C.? We raced them my senior year. They were the high school champions. We were the yep. New England schoolboy champions, and we raced them at Henley and beat them. <laughs> what, was the, what was the margin? Can you remember? Uh, I think it was probably about a length. I love it. I love it. Yeah. All right, so let me ask you. So did you just love the sport right away? Did you enjoy it, or was it kind of like you just really well, – what was it like for you? Well, it was odd. I mean, getting into a boat that looked like that uh, was unusual. Uh, you know, think of you know, think of a probably a thirteen-year-old boy in a boat that size and the oar. Uh, it certainly, it certainly was uh, certainly was intriguing. Uh, you can't say whether you loved it or hated it. Well, I certainly didn't dislike it, uh, but. It was, you know, it was, it was intriguing. And the fact that everybody was doing it, the weather vane on the main building and campus was a profile of a, of a, of an eight. Uh, so it was a big deal at the school. And I, you know, I, how would you say I was intrigued by it and spent most of my rowing when I was up there in the clubs. It wasn't until my junior year that I made the uh, first two boats up. So I was, you know, not, not as a sidebar to this, but, you know, the sport that I was physically suited for was football and I was captain of the football team. Uh, you know, I was, you know, I was pretty heavy set and, uh, you know, I, I matured early, but I was, I was roughly six feet, maybe a little over six feet. What position did you play? I was a linebacker. Ah, inside, outside? I was uh, what's called the Mike. I was the uh, I was the center linebacker. It was in those days the the defenses were very simple, really primitive. It was you know a diamond formation and so forth and so on. Nothing complex. Nobody threw the ball. Oh yeah, is, I, stop, yeah. Stop no, the I, ball carrier. <laughs> I can see it. I love it. So all right. So um, really, like rowing was an afterthought to you, right? It was just to stay fit in the springtime, and then you played football all fall. I well, it wasn't so much. Yeah, I did play football all fall, uh, but the uh, no, it wasn't. It wasn't an afterthought. Uh, you know, it, you know, early on, early on, it was. Uh, it was clear to me that 
uh, rowing was more appealing. And I think it was more appealing for this reason. Uh, football practices, uh, it's rare, even in those days, you had one, one day a week where you had a live scrimmage. Uh, and then, of course, Saturdays for the game. But the rest of the time, it was uh, there was a fair amount of standing around, half speed, uh, you know, complex assignments that had to be absorbed. Rowing was so refreshing because literally, you know, two boats always boats always went up together, and uh, you know, just by everybody's instincts. You try to get your bow in front of the other boat. So, you know, I, I think rowing appeals very, very directly to people that are uh, very overtly or covertly very competitive. And I enjoyed it because you could compete every day. There was a measurement. Did your boat do well? Did your boat win the pieces? Did they not? So there was immediate footback, uh, feedback. It wasn't as technical. Uh, in terms of cerebral engagement as, let's say, football. Yeah. So, sure. But I found it very, very appealing. More, so, appe more appealing than football, in fact. Were you, were you any good at it? Were you good at row? You said you made the top boat your junior, junior I, senior you know, year. I, 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 uh, by the last two years, and I, you know, I, was, I, was, I was good at it. I was good at it. Uh, we had very good teachers. Understand that you, you started when you're 13, 14, 13 years old, and you and they had the various teachers at the school, or we call them masters, would teach you uh, how to row. So there was a lot of time to learn to do it, you'd say, somewhat efficiently. And so by the time you got to the top two boats, who were coached by uh, T. Dixon Walker, you had a pretty good idea of, of how to move a boat. Uh, but I would say my, clearly my, uh, if you want to call it my contributions where I've, uh, this sound, it's sort of a, sounds like a, a, you know, bragging or self-serving comment, but I was a strong boy. You know, I was 200, 210 pounds and, and, you know, loved to pull, you know, loved to drive. Uh, so I was sat in the five seat and, uh, that was, you know, that was my contribution. Uh, did you have a Did you have a good uh, relationship with your coaches at the time? At that, uh, yeah. I mean, it's a good relationship in this sense. Uh, the it was really clear uh, what the objective was on each practice. Uh, it was clear that you know this was a time where you were preparing to race. You know, because you know the the, the you know it, it you know. It tote Walker in his own way. He was quiet. He was a taciturn guy. He was sort of the archetypical Yankee, old Yankee. Uh, and you know, he did there was no hooting and hollering. There was no, you know, you know, long sort of diatribes, but you could just feel his uh how would you call it, his uh his competitive nature. Uh understand, oh, and Tote was a coxswain. So you have this coxswain who's coaching you and uh, you could feel, I know I'm repeating myself, but you could feel the intensity of the, of the endeavor. And, uh, and he was also uh, through, you know, through rowing, 
and he was he was very intent on what you would call uh, proper behavior. Proper behavior in those days, uh, part of it was uh, to project modesty, mm -hmm. uh, not draw attention to yourself. Uh, you know, behave in a way that, although he wanted you to be uber aggressive, he also wanted you to be, you know, sort of a broad, broad term. He wanted you to be uh, a gentleman. You know, I, I, I don't, I, maybe I'm reaching here, uh, Steve. I, I think that speaks a lot. It, it, I think it reflects your style of coaching now. You know, I, you've won so much and you don't see articles written or interviews of you being brash and egotistical and be like, I'm the best. It's like, you're very quiet about it. Uh, you're very reserved about it, uh, about the success that you've had over the last 20 something years of, of head coaching, 30 years of coaching. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Now you went to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So not too far away, like 400 miles west. So not too far away. Mm -hmm. uh, you went there to row. It was at the the focus. You know, I you know I I had been in boys' schools, single sex boys' schools. You know, from sixth grade, I was in the school called St. Paul's out in Long Island. Then I was at Kent. I repeated my fourth form year. So I was at Kent for six years, that was chapel twice a day, all wow. boys, <laughs> uh, you know, highly structured, oh, really, you know, essentially monastic uh, life, no radios, no TVs, no padded furniture, blah, 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 blah. You had a job twice a day. So I had a choice of, of, of three schools uh, and the two of them, were, were football related. Uh, one was Colgate, uh, spent, uh, was up there on a recruiting trip and met coach Alva Kelly. And then went to Penn, uh, what was his name? Uh, Stegman, I think was his, the coach. Uh, and when I went to Colgate, I said, no way, this is just gonna be another four years of Kent. And that's not what I was looking for. Uh, Penn at that time was, uh, I don't know, it was in a pretty sort of shabby looking neighborhood. And uh, I, I'm being harsh, but it was not, yeah. where at least let's put it this way, where I visited, which was the stadium area. Yeah. And that didn't look real cool. And then I went to Syracuse and I said, oh, this is it. There were, you know, it was co-ed. Uh, there were a lot of smiles on the faces. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that just seemed to be, you know, not seemed to be, it was a, a real easy choice. <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, obviously, I mean, good God. Yeah, I would, I would, yeah. as I'm yeah. writing down these experiences, I'm like, you were yeah. a single sex education for so long. I, I have three kids. I could never imagine that for them. Like, that would be yeah. Yeah. crazy. Yeah. And, and what I'd say about it, you know, it's, it's hardly profound. I, I think it's, uh, I don't think it's healthy at all. No, not at all. How could it be? The world is, you know, the world has, has women and men in it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. how can it be healthy to isolate uh, the two, uh, the two genders? So I would go crazy. I would, I would go absolutely insane. Um, yeah. All right. So you, you, just, I'm not, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. You, you decide at what point do you decide that you want to make rowing 
a career focus, or at least at the time, like, I want to put some energy into this and, and make money off of this. When did that happen? That, that, that moment was clear as a bell, uh, clear as a bell. Uh, I was married uh, in between my junior and senior year. I was married in October of 1963. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You're like a child getting married. I was a child. And That's I insane. and I won't and I don't want to go into the details. Wait a minute. Oh, I, just, I, just, I want to point something out for a second. <laughs> but but you, you were... can read between the lines. <laughs> That's just uh, sure. But like two years into being at a co-ed school, gotta get married. That is insane. And, well, as I said, without read between the lines. <laughs> so between the lines, uh, my first son was born in uh, April of 1964. Wow. So, uh, oh. but, but let me get to the point. Let's okay. get to your point. I don't want to go into a sensitive area, you know, particularly if my uh, ex-wife were the, uh, you know, listen to this podcast. But the, uh, so I was, it, she was French. And so I was in France. And uh, I needed a job. And I went, uh, I, I joined this uh, investment firm in Geneva, Switzerland, uh, and entered their training program. And uh, I, I can't tell you how many weeks into it, maybe two, maybe three. Uh, I walked back to the hotel uh, where I was staying and just walked in, opened the door, sat down on the bed, and I can remember it vividly. There are few times in life, in my life anyway, where I've ever asked myself the right question. Very, very few times. And what I said is, is this what adult life's going to be like? Because if it is, and this, I don't want this. This doesn't, this doesn't touch me. In fact, it touches me negatively. You know, uh, I was in despair, to put it bluntly. Uh, but let, let me call it the hand of God, which is I asked myself the right question. And this was the question. This was the question that I asked myself. Where have you been the most fulfilled, engaged, and happiest? What was going on in your life when those emotions mm. were in place? And immediately, immediately my mind flashed onto, well, it was on the river, on the playing field, but mostly on the river. So, you know, we have two little creatures that sit on either, either one of our uh, shoulders. You know, the little caustic one with the, you know, with the horns said, well, Steve, what are you going to do? Row up and down a river your whole life? Uh, you know, and I said, well, Jesus, you can't do that. And at that point, there really was no, you know, even advanced rowing. At that particular time, there was no national team. Yeah. There was just a, a trial. 
And whoever won that trial, in eight, it was always a university and small boats, it was various clubs. And then besides from that, I was gonna be a father. I had to support a wife and a child. So I wasn't gonna be able to row up and down a river every day. And then the little angel said, well, Steve, have you ever thought of coaching? And I said, hmm, Tote Walker at Kent, Vic Michelson at Syracuse. These were men that I admired very, very much, just as men, not necessarily as coaches, but as men. So at that particular point in time, that might have been, that might have been in November, December of 1963. So from that point forward, I knew this. I knew that I wanted to try coaching. I didn't know whether I'd like it or not, but it was really clear I wanted to give it a try. So make a long story short, uh, skip some of the details. Uh, uh, my wife got her visa so we, she could get back into the country. I called up the Dean of Letters and Science at Syracuse. It was Dean Feigl was his name, really a great guy. I said, Dean, I can get back into the States sometime in February. Can I come back to school mid-semester? And you know, he knew me. Uh, this is in days when there was you had these kind of relationships. And Dean Feigl said, oh, yeah, Steve. You've completed all your uh, your required subjects for your major. I was an English major. You've completed that. We'll let you come back in February, but you're going to have to go to summer school, you know, to get the number of units you need to graduate. So I did that, uh, and uh, yeah, I did that. And then the first job that I applied for was the freshman coaching job at Dartmouth. And I applied for that job most likely in May or June of 1964. Wow. And unfortunately, I got a letter back from Pete Gardner and said, Steve, you know, you really you know, ought to pursue endeavors that you're more suited for. I still have that letter, by the way. Oh, wow. <laughs> a rejection. My uh, rejection letter. I still have it. And uh, I developed a very, very, very close friendship with Pete Gardner because Pete was always assisting in national team endeavors and I love the man. But I was rejected. Oh. So I finished, uh, finished my degree in the summer, needed a job, as I said before, went to work in New York. Uh, in those days, in these days, people go to, you know, these consulting firms, you know, BCG, you know, you know, McKenzie, et cetera, et cetera. Those were what sort of the aggressive guys do today, aggressive and, and whatever it is, call it whatever you like. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, it the industry that was capturing a lot of those people was advertising. Have you ever watched whatever what is it called? Madman show. Madman. Yeah. So through family connections, I got a job at Batten Barton Durston and Osborne. Never, ever, ever with the intention 
of making that a career. In fact, I found it really pretty, how would you call it? The whole concept, I think, is pretty objectionable, but I know that's somewhat of a naive concept on my part. Oh, my uh, God. So 19, 1965, you have a French wife, a newborn. Yeah. All right. So you got married. Yeah, you married. In, yeah. So but you have this this newborn come. Yeah. And you're in a job in New York yeah. City that you just you hate. You just hate the job. I hate it. I hate it. So what am I doing when you hate a job? Uh, you hate a job. I did the job. Uh, I partied hard. Yeah. Yes. Partied hard. And then in the, you know, three or four afternoons a week, I'd go up to the 92nd Street wine box, at, you know, for about an hour and a half in the, you know, in the evening before coming home. You know, I was a, I was, I was an adolescent or post adolescent. Uh, and there I was. So, you, uh, so I, let me, let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Um, did you, did you have support from your parents? Right. So I, not, I, did you have a good relationship at all with your dad or your mom? Like what was uh, that? My mom, my mom died. Oh Broke. no. My mom died in 1962. Uh, oh. and, uh, my dad and I, uh, as I grew up, we had a, we did not have a close relationship. Uh, and so essentially when I got married, uh, my father said that, you know, this is a 1950s language. He said, you're on your own pal. Pal was the operative word. <laughs> so you're on your own pal. And so I was, you know, when I was, you know, finishing up at Syracuse, I worked up in the bookstore up in you know, one of the dorms. And I'd go, you know, I'd go down. These these are all stories that a lot of people have in youth from that period. We'd go down to the butcher and see, you know, get the cheapest cuts of meats so we could make ends meet. But yeah, so uh, I was working in New York uh, and, but keeping in touch with friends in rowing and from time to time uh, going up to Columbia and getting in the launch with this, unbelievable character it, it, his, his name was sam mckenzie mm -hmm. stuart a mckenzie he was one of the world's fastest scholars he was an aussie and i'd get in his launch and uh put around and it was i believe it was in november of 1965 and god bless him uh, Victor Michelson, who had been my frosh coach at Syracuse and who I'd kept in touch with, said, Steve, Dutch Shock down at Princeton had a heart attack this summer. He's been moved over to becoming the golf coach. Pete Sparhawk has become the varsity coach. And there's a freshman opening there. Uh, and you ought to apply. Wow. So I did. I applied and I got the job because the two leading candidates who clearly, clearly deserved to be the leading candidates. One was Bill Stowe. Wow. Who literally had just come back from being the stroke man of the gold medal Olympic eight in Tokyo. And wow. Bill had also wrote it, Kent, and I knew Bill. And he said, no. 
I don't want to coach. Uh, and then the other was a boat made at Syracuse who was a brilliant oarsman, Tony Johnson. And Tony <laughs> said, I don't want to coach because if I get paid, I'll lose my Olympic eligibility. Man, so by default, my, my rowing career was, you know, we won the sprints as freshmen. You know, I was in the varsity as a, a sophomore. And then, as we know, uh, I was in France. Uh, I was gone. Uh, so essentially, I rode in college two and a half years. Uh, and uh, so whatever it is, that's all to say my rowing career was at best. It was just, it was what it was. So, Steve, I, I don't want to say this. This is a... This might be the wrong phrase to use, but you kind of fell ass backwards into this whole coaching thing. I mean, you were in New York, you're boxing, you're with a, a new wife. And thank God Bill Stowe and Tony Johnson said no, because you would never have, you would have been rejected twice at that point. Absolutely. And, and, and rejected twice, understandably. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they yeah. were simply much stronger candidates. No, I, you know. The only thing I didn't fall ass backward in was back in Geneva when I asked myself the question. Yeah, that, that, that brought that, chills to me. That, that was incredible. I love yeah, that. that. You know what I call that in my life? Because that's not usually the way my mind works. That has to be the hand of God. Oh, yeah. Who pulled, pulled me out of the mire. But yeah, but no, you're absolutely right. Total ass backwards. Uh, now, let me, I, I, I'm interested though. I, so... You don't have to get it too in the in the depth, but I'm missing a moment in your life. How the hell did you find this woman in France? Like, wh how did you meet your wife at the time? How did that get connected? That you know, it's, it, you know, that's you know, that's a fair question. Uh, the summer my mom died in June. That summer, uh, I had a, I was. I had this, there was a program that had a Ford Foundation grant uh, for people who were considering to be teachers. And the grant put you, placed you in this camp mm -hmm. in the summer. It was called Children's Colony Camp. Uh, and uh, so I went up there as a counselor, uh, a counselor and a wrestling instructor. That's what I did in the wintertime in high school. So whatever it was. So uh, I went up there. There were three really attractive young ladies from France. It was yeah. an international deal uh, on their program. And I met this woman and then went back the following summer uh, back to France. So that's how I, I met uh, wow. my wife. And then, and then shortly after your dad says, you're on your own, pal. See yeah. you later. See you later. <laughs> See you later. You know, good I'm luck, thinking here. Good cause, I, so goodbye. I'm 36. I'm sure he was. I mean, like, you know, in, in probably a father's eye, it's almost like you're throwing your life away, right? That's and, exactly and, right. Right? Yeah. So you're screwed, kid. You're, you're going you're right. to turn out the opposite of what we expected out of you. I, um, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think you summarized it. And uh, yeah, yeah. You know, my, so I, I, I've coached high school level. I've never at the collegiate level and mm -hmm. I'm just putting myself as a 22 year old jumping around jobs, hating it, drinking, boxing mm -hmm. on the side, 
with yeah. a new wife and kid. I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm surprised that you found a way out of that lifestyle. That's a hard lifestyle. Once you're in it, it's really hard to get out of. Well, you know, the Princeton job saved my bacon. I mean, I don't, you know, if that job, and you have to understand, put this into context for people that are in rowing now, there are almost no collegiate rowing jobs. I mean, yeah. there was no women's rowing, right? No. no. Uh, very little high school rowing. And, you know, what, there were, what, 12, 13 universities that rowed? So jobs were rare. How much did you make? How much did you make that first year? What was your what was your salary? Three two, three thousand two hundred dollars a year. <laughs> I, you know, I know money's different, right? Account for inflation, but like, I would love to know quickly in my head what does that convert to in today's dollars? I mean, that's poverty. I, I have no idea, but here's here's how it worked. Princeton was great because this is this is the way it worked. Uh, there was subsidized housing. So I think, I don't know, the rent might have been 150 a month. Uh, you didn't really need a car. Yeah, why would you? Uh, you didn't need a car. And my wife was teaching at the Sacred Heart School outside yeah. of Princeton. So I think our combined salary was probably 5000 And it was plenty. It was did you buy a house? Did you, no... did you, did you, I mean, eventually did you buy a house and get settled down? Cause you were at Princeton for a little bit. I mean, you were there for, oh, no. for a while. You couldn't no? buy a house. No, no, I was at Princeton for three years. Okay. And I was coaching the freshman heavies. So when it, when did you become, um, I like to use the word, uh, obsessed, right? Most rowers become obsessed. Like you, you, you found the job, you got it. The hand of God said, ask the right question. You ask, you ask the question, <laughs> you get this job, you start progressing. I mean, I don't even, I don't even know how many IRAs you've won. I don't even know how many Eastern sprints. I know you won that a couple of times. Henley's by the way, by the way, that's not really important. <laughs> no, it's not. No, I, I, that's why I don't want to talk about it. But like, when it really did you is. become obsessed? When, yeah. when were you obsessed? Uh, from the time job? I got in the launch. Let, wow. let me, let me give you a little background. Uh, so I went down and applied for the job and I drove down route one and I was, I was driving down route one. I said, Jesus, do I want to be here? <laughs> it's, it's not that bad. Uh, I don't know. I mean, at the time, you know, uh, so when I took the job, I wasn't absolutely certain that this was something I was going to love. Mm. That being said, the first day in the launch, it was over. I loved it. So from that point, I mean, it was just, there was no question. This was, this was where my heart and soul were. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. Let's, let me ask you, one of my questions I want to ask you is, uh, I asked my dad, my dad is uh, 70, just turned, almost turned 70. And mm -hmm. I said, what's your favorite decade? Go back, like put yourself, what's your favorite decade of all time? Maybe it's a favorite decade of rowing, of your life. Like what, answer the question. I would have to say the seventies. And the seventies, yeah, I think it, it had to do, it had to do with, uh, it really had to do with the environment. Uh, you know, it, it was, you know, 
by night, it, it, you know, the first, it's 70, 71, 72, I was coaching lightweights at Harvard and, and, and 1969 as well. There were four years with the lightweights and that understand, I was not much older than these guys. You're 26, uh, tw you're 26, 27 at that point, yeah, something right? Something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and they were, they were exceptionally motivated. They had a real, uh, you know, there were two or three of them that had, you know, they had really good senses of humor. Uh, and on top of that, I was living in, on the North Shore, uh, oh. up in Marblehead, Swampscott, that area, up in Marblehead. And that's, uh, that's where my family, my parents and grandparents are all from that area of the world. Uh, but make long story short, they were such a terrific group of people to be around. At that particular point in time, that boathouse was vibrant. That was very, very, I mean, Harry Parker hired me uh, and Harry and I got along exceedingly were well. You, how nervous were you for that interview? I don't think I was particularly nervous. I, uh, I, I, in those circumstances, out of naivete or whatever it is, I, I don't get nervous. I was just flat out curious and excited. That's so cool. You know, I, you know, uh, and so, so those years of with, with that group of oarsmen and being around Harry and everybody's much Ted Washburn. Yeah. And Ted was just a brilliant coach. And I know there was just horrible horrible incidents in his life when when so, was the so the the early 70s was the rude and smooth crew or was that in the no that that, that came later the that early came... 70s were uh oh that was the 72 olympic crew uh you know the livingston brothers the Hobbs brothers hobbs brothers uh god i've forgotten the name of the stroke uh but they're they're all good guys and and the livingston's both of them i was on the phone with mike two days ago uh, he's an attorney out in hawaii and his oh man that's so cool. brother cleave so whatever it was it was a it was an exciting time and the crews were fast and then the 70s that i spent in berkeley uh it was a great time to be out there and i formed some of the friendships that have been with me for the rest of my life how much how much time and this is personal right so this is the part sure. of that personal question how much time were you spending at the boathouse with with your staff, with everybody versus at home? You know, were, were you spending just a lot of time at the boathouse? I, I think I know where you're going with this. And the answer, the answer to that is probably 85% of my waking hours were focused on what it is that makes boats go fast. Yeah. And the camaraderie, the intrigue. Uh, the study, you know, just sort of breaking the thing down uh, to understand exactly what it is. What are the elements, the psychological, physiological, and biomechanical? What are the, how, do, how, do, how do you do this? And then how do you teach it? So, yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, that's where huge energy went. Now, at the same time, you know, I came home in the evenings and, you know, with wife uh, and 
one child, my second son was born in 72, uh, and I was more mature, uh, but it, it was uh, very, it was a very, if you want to call it, uh, in some ways, very uh, focused, and, and you could say, uh, how would you call it, almost selfish time. Uh, selfish in this sense, it was devoted to what I just described. So and, uh, how many and, hours do you think that you worked at the time? You know, was this 60, 70 hours a week? Was this 80 hours a week? Like, because I, I, I just want to compare it to today's coaching world. I, I think well, to be successful, you need that attention. You need that focus. Well, let's, let's break it down to locations because it changed. Okay. In Princeton, it was easy literally easy you lived there you know it was it was it was a, a, a small town you'd get to the boathouse uh and there were two coaches finn meislin uh who was my age and he was lightweight varsity coach pete sparhawk and myself and we were all trying to figure it out we're all kind of figured out. I'll, let's let's put this in 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 context. Uh, in this country, there were very 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 accomplished coaches. Almost all of them, University of Washington people, Stork Sanford, so forth and so on. Tom Bowles, and they all were aging and stepped down. I think within a five or six year period. So there was a vacuum. It was also a time when the US had lost the Olympics for the first time in 1960. And so, you know, like it, human nature is such that the laws look at, at what it is that, what, what was it about Ratzburg, the West Germans made them win. So the point is there was a vacuum in understanding uh, the people that had been coaching before the University of Washington guys came up in the Pocock School, and they they taught the same same how would you call it? the same mechanical the stroke was the same yeah the the thoughts were the same but this was a time when there was a vacuum and into that vacuum entered Harry Parker as a head coach uh, Pete Sparhawk you know. The, the names are, are, are not that important, but people with very, very little rowing, truly coaching experience uh, or mentoring. Harry had, the, Harry had the very good fortune of being coached by Joe Burke. And Joe Burke was a very, uh, very creative, uh, very creative coach. And of course, a phenomenal athlete as a Sullivan Award winner. But so that's to say, that creates a context. So we were all trying to figure it out. And so there was a lot of mental energy in figuring it out, a lot of talk, a lot of, hey, this, that, the other thing. So it was, it was very creative, very creative time. Uh, young coaches and trying to figure it out. And I was one of them. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think it's so cool. It, it um, well, the 1970s and 80s, you saw a lot of the industry was booming, right? Not not rowing. I mean, like actual 
America was growing. You had technology, mm -hmm. you had mm -hmm. these, all these wonderful ideas that are sparking in this, this revolution mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. new business. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sort of, I see it happening now with you and some other coaches of aging out, stepping down from mm -hmm. the sport. You're, you're seeing mm -hmm. that same situation from 60 to 70 happening to today, you know, mm -hmm. the 2020 to 2030, mm -hmm. um, very similar. Mm -hmm. um, man, okay, so yeah, this all makes sense. Um, you, Cal, Brown, Cal, Yale, you, 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 you won all of these, all these places. Um, aside from the 60s and 70s, like how have been the last 20 years of your, of your coaching career as you, as you're a much older man and how's the last 15, 20 years been for you? Uh, you know, what, uh, you know, my experience is this, is that, uh, I'll answer the question this way. I don't think it was until probably 1984, 85, that I fundamentally grasped uh, now we're just talking about the mechanics and the training. Yep. yep. The protocol that I would call that exists today and that I've taught ever since then. Uh, wow. There's one thing to imitate. Uh, there's another thing to actually have a visceral sense, both cognitively and tactic of what it is biomechanically that moves the boat. And it's very simple. The concept is very simple. And this is in the biomechanics. It's really time with pressure on the blade. You know, when we think of the active, the, when we think of the power section of the stroke, it's time with pressure on the blade. Now you can produce that with, you know, a leg initiated drive or a drive that engages the legs and core simultaneously. You can these variations, but this, 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 the, the fundamental piece is time with pressure on the blade. And then, and then of course, the ability to allow the boat to row and, and master the transitions back end, front end. You don't want the hull to slow down. So you, so you've got to, you know, you've got to move, you know, gingerly and uh, accurately through those transitions. But, uh, so it wasn't until probably the mid to late eighties that I, I developed, uh, what I felt and was absolutely confident in the, the basic fundamentals uh, of what it is that moves about. That's simply biomechanically. And that's only one piece of it. And I think uh, I had the good fortune of spending an awful lot of time with uh, Dr. Fritz Hagerman, who was the head of the human performance lab at the University of Ohio. And Fritz did all the physiological testing on our athletes and uh, there was just a noted physiologist. So he was, he reinforced and, and put, put scientific language essentially to the protocols that a lot of us have used uh, over the years. Uh, so now get to your question. Uh, in, you know, I think, um, each, this is not being evasive, each, in, in any journey, uh, there, there, there are phases and there are challenges. Uh, and, you know, in the, in the coaching world, you know, it's, uh, 
you know, particularly, particularly when you approach uh, the racing season, you know, you're bound to have, you're bound to have, uh, you know, high levels of, you know, high levels of anxiousness, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you don't, you're brain dead. Uh, and so I think over time, you learn to overuse sort of phrase, you, you learn to become comfortable being uncomfortable, you learn to function accurately, very much like a, an oarsman, oarswoman, uh, you learn to function when you're in physical uh, discomfort. So what I would say, this is an indirect way. So the longer you do it, to some extent, uh, the you have significant uh, advantages in being able to function, you know, under duress. And so what I would say is probably starting midpoint at Brown, through the next period at Cal and through at Yale, uh, you're how would you call it? You're you're more seasoned. You are seasoned, and as a consequence, I think in many ways you can be more effective in your communication with the athletes. Uh, and the other other piece is, I think, generally, as people age in any profession, it this is the optimal is it becomes so much less about you and so much more about them. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's very, how would you call it? Very liberating. Uh, and you don't even see it coming, right? You don't, you don't see that coming. It just, no. it, there's maybe a year that it happens, it clicks and, and you become confident. Uh, you know, one of the questions I, I thought long and hard about mm -hmm. is, what was the race you were most nervous for as a coach? Uh, is there an event? Is there a day that you're like, oh, I like you're just terrified or nervous or anxious about the result? I, I think there were two, two. Well, first of all, every season, every season that I've coached, every campaign, there are times in those comp, comp campaigns where you say, what the hell am I doing? You know, this isn't working. You know, that happens. So if you think you'll ever escape that, you know, you don't. <laughs> and and if you do, if that doesn't if that doesn't happen to you, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> you know, you're in deep trouble. So you know, so there's always you know, you know that that that's always gonna be part of it. Uh refreshment. Your question was my question was going back on your oh, career. What was the right. most nervous you were at? What were you said there were two races that you there were, were the two races? Nervous. One was the finals at Henley in the Thames Cup with the Harvard Lightweights in 1971. They hadn't lost any races for a couple of years, and uh, this was sort of the culmination of a particular group of guys. And I remember I was so so nervous nervous anxious nervous yeah that i stayed back in the boat tents and did not watch the race whoa 
Whoa. That, you know, that's it's the truth of it. Uh, I think the other time, and I'm not exactly sure why, again, uh, it was it was at, it was the final race uh, for a very fast crew. and that was at, that was at Brown in 19, 1993. And that was that uh, that was that race. Actually, I think it was sort of a bogus deal. They called it a national championship, which it wasn't. This was a, a race in Cincinnati. Yeah. Uh, and I remember uh, I was very, very nervous for that. What? What? what that why? Race. Why were? Why that? Why I, that I, race? Think, I think when you're having a perfect season, mm. uh, and and I think when you're having a perfect season, and when it's the culmination for a particular group of athletes, uh, and both in '72 and '93, it was that. That was their last collegiate race for most of them. And you so much want them to go out, you know, you know, on top that it, it you know, you bring a lot of you you put a lot of uh, pressure on yourself. Well, you said uh, so in, in the two thousands, early two thousands at Cal, you had guys that were that never lost a college race, and there was never that that anxiety either of just oh, can this run continue? Can this still happen? Yeah, right. Yeah, it, uh, it, you know those years. Uh, there were four. There were four years. There was what was it? Ninety nine, two thousand, two thousand one, two thousand two. Yeah. Uh, sure, but I think with those groups of people, there were always changing people. It was not as if it was a culmination for I a see. group. I got it. I got people. it. I got it. Uh, okay. You know the yeah so. You know, so that's that's that, and you know, just as an, an aside, uh, and something that, you know, we're all, you know, we're being, you know, as we say, direct and honest here. You know, it was so heartbreaking in 2020. That was easily the fastest Yale crew that I'd coached, uh, and it never came to pass. It was COVID. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and that that was a group that have, would they had three a three year stretch that would have been a four, and that was that was you know a terrific boat, but it never happened. Then it was COVID, and and that was it. But um, yeah, so those to answer your question, those two races, seventy two and ninety three. I have two last questions. One is a silly question, um, and that is, if I were to picture, if I didn't know you, and I just knew your presence and your races. Mm -hmm. Like what is I think what does this guy do at like eight o'clock at night on a Tuesday? What shows are he watching? Is he watching television or is he just this guy reading a book about rowing? Like I would love to know. Like in your spare time, like what do you do? How do you spend um, your spare time? The well, a couple of things. One, uh, what I'll do when I come home, uh, you know, uh, chat and eat, and then you know have you know have a, a a couple of a uh, couple of drinks and then what i'll do is i'll go back and i will go right through the log that practice make notations you know what were what were my impressions i've got those logs the 
first one began in 1969. So oh, I'll, I'll, I'll make notations. They're not necessarily sentences. They're just observations, notations. Uh, it's not it's, it's not literature. And uh, I'll do oh, that. Do you have like and, do you have like a like do you have like a Netflix account? Like right? Like do you like you watch know, my, TV? And my my wife my wife is uh, is really informed. Uh, I mean, we've got everything. I should say she's got Netflix, Hulu, yeah, all those things. And uh, if you if you'll ask ask me the the series that I enjoy, yeah, that I've enjoyed uh, or what I enjoy right now, you know, just because of its beauty, I love uh, Yellowstone. Yeah, you're and a Yellowstone love, guy. You look gets yeah, hundred percent, hundred. And I love the I love the prequel. What was that? Eighteen eighty three. Yeah. I think the pre prequel is better than the regular Yellowstone. What's uh, uh, Steve Gladstone? What's like your favorite movie? Give me like some top three oh, favorite movies. Easily, easily. Give it to me. Easily, The Unforgiven. Oh, yes. Oh. You know, and and the reason for that, any any movie that that seriously delves into the human condition. To me is fascinating and if you look at that movie it's it it does you know you have this young kid who thinks that being a cowboy and a and a and a bounty hunter is is a cool thing until he finds out it's not yeah uh then i think the last line i don't mean to be grim but the last one of the last lines in that movie it's just brilliant uh clint eastward has Gene Hackman on his back, you know. I, I know the scene. <laughs> I know the scene. And, and these lines, Gene says, I don't deserve this. I, I just don't deserve this. <laughs> and then this is the profound line. And Clint Eastwood said, life's not about deserving. It's not. Look at these, look at, look what's going on in the Ukraine. Look what's going on with so many of these kids in our inner cities. I mean, life is not about deserving. It truly is not. Uh, and but so yeah, so the Unforgiven uh, is probably my favorite movie. Uh, yeah, that's no. a perfect. That, that's a perfect. That's a perfect answer. Now, last question, and it, you can get as deep as you want, mm -hmm. but the. I, I always thought that the the dream of a coach, right, that, that's been doing mm -hmm. it their whole lives is to end mm -hmm. on a high note. You, you mm -hmm. win the national championship, you win mm -hmm. Henley, and mm -hmm. you're like, you know what, I've done. I'm going to hang up the oar, the, the whistle, I'm done. Mm -hmm. um, was why this year? So, so you know, you were close. You, you, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't happen at the IRA. Mm -hmm. uh, so why this year? What was it about? Um, you know, it's... Uh... Those are hard questions. That's a hard question to answer, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And whether it's accurate or not, don't know. Uh, it seems, it seems that I've got a, what, a 12, 13 year window in a, in a particular place and program, sort of at Cal to begin with, then at Brown, then back at Cal, and now Yale, uh, I think I, this is what I, this is, this is my narrative and it might not be accurate, 
I'll, I'll, I want you to be certain of that. Mm -hmm. I think what I enjoy most, well, I'll circle back to that notion again, is the, how, the restitution of the program, the building process, uh, I find very, very intriguing. Uh, no question about it. Uh, it, it there was a, the reason I said there's no question, that seems to be my MO. It's not on purpose. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. It's not as, as if I say, well, I'm going to go here and I'm going to do this. I'm going to get it all going again. And then I'm going to leave. That, that's not it. But it seems that there's a subtext that that, that sort of is that is the way. And I want to be clear because I don't want this to be misunderstood. It's not as if I say to myself, well, Steve, you've really mastered this situation or that, you know, it's not that at all. I, I, I truly, and I don't say this in a self-effacing self way or as a phony way, you know, there is no such thing in mass, as mastery. As I, I'll come back because I want coaches to hear this, any coaches that listen to this. Every one of the seasons that I've coached, I've doubted myself. I've doubted my protocol. I've doubted the whole enchilada. I've had doubts. In other words, what I say to the athletes, the siren songs have gotten a hold of me. So there's never a sense of, well, you've got this nailed. Uh, but there seems to be a period of 13 some odd year period where I, I, I need, need to change. Now, in this, this particular incident, it coincides with, which is daunting, in, on May 16, I'll be 82 years old. So I'm not oblivious to the fact that in the best scenario, I'm in the last 150 of my life. So, uh, so you know, there is that existential uh, awareness that's going on. Uh, so I think it's I think it's a combination of things. And there is no conceivable way that I could be, how would you call it, a fulfilled or happy human being without teaching. I have to do that. I'm, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm a one trick pony. I need to teach. Uh, and in this case, I teach rowing. Uh, so I will find ways of doing that uh, outside of being a head coach at a university. For example, I fully intend to stay very, very close to the Yale program. Uh, what I'd like to do uh, at some point, the, the word is, is, you know, troubles me a bit, but I'd, I'd like to be, I'd like to do some consulting, mm. uh, helping people, you know, helping, you know, people that are putting programs together, coaches, whatever it might be. Uh, I want to do that. I, I need a full day of teaching and, you know, so I'll do that. I'll, I'll see if, uh, see if our, what is it called? Chief high 
rowing director? Is it a, it's a chief, I know that. Yeah, chief something or other. Chief is a chief. <laughs> I wanna see if our chief high rowing director has, can, you know, can, uh, I'd like to, uh, if, if he feels there are circumstances or ways that I could uh, uh, serve the national program, uh, you know, I'd like to do that as well. But uh, yeah, can I do an add-on? Do you have more questions for him? Because I'd like to do an add-on. Do an add-on. This is your time. All right. Yeah, of course. Okay. Let me let me do this this add-on, uh, which is at you know at the base of it, at the base of it, the the coach, a coach who's going to be, you know, effective, uh, you know, has to have uh, intrinsic and genuine drive to serve the people that he's coaching to teach them and not it's you know the boats and oars will be the vehicle for the lessons i know this sounds cliche i know it but but it's real if if the coach is involved and the involvement is so is self-centered it's not going to work real well it's not going to stick. And that coach is going to be in agony. Because if, if you think your value is based on the number of times your bow crosses the finish line first, you're mistaken. You endeavor, for sure, you endeavor to have that bow come across the finish line first. However, what most likely will bring that about is your devotion to the people you're coaching. You've got to tell, you have to have the capacity and the willingness to tell them the truth about what's wanted and needed in their development as oarsmen. Uh, and some of the people that I've seen in my time that struggle the most are people that have the, the need to be approved of and liked. You have to put that away. You're not striving to be not approved of. You're certainly not striving to be disliked. But at the core of what you're doing, you have to tell the truth about what's wanted and needed to bring the situation forward. What adjustments they need to make, both in their mindsets and very functionally in how they row the boat and how they train. So you have to be devoted to the athletes, truly devoted. That has to be your, at your core. And when you, this comes back to your question, where have I been the most nervous? What did I tell you? It's when there's a group. A culmination. This is their last rodeo. Yes, yes. And you feel passionately or deeply about them having the, the the reward for that period for that period so the secret sauce and i've said this before the secret sauce is you know of course the biomechanics of the stroke the the proper periodization of training there are all kinds of variations on that by the way if you think there's just one way of bringing a boat to the to the starting line that's absolutely the right way you're terribly naive there are a number of protocols that can be used. 
And there are a lot of variations on the application of the stroke. You know, time with pressure on the blade is one thing, but there's, there are different ways of creating that and different variations in the theme. But if you think that's the essence of it, mastering those things, mastering those things is great. But if you think that automatically translates uh, into success on the water, you're, you're mistaken. You're mistaken. Athlete, athletes can sense. The athletes can sense very, pretty very quickly, probably very quickly, whether you, you're truly devoted to their development uh, or whether this is sort of a interesting scientific experiment that you're running and using them wow. as the vehicle for your uh, own particular uh, validation. So, yeah, so that's it. Uh, what, a, what, a, what a way to close out, Steve. I, you know, I, I took, I don't know, 10 pages of notes here. Mm -hmm. um, I had a blast and I hope right. you did too. And I hope everyone that listened in episode one, season four, I hope you guys had a good time. And um, if, if you want to get to, if you want to get in contact with Steve for a uh, consulting gig, I know how you can get a hold of him and we'll make sure that you can get a hold of him. But uh, all kidding aside, Steve, thank you for the time. And I had a great, great time talking to you. Oh, good. And thank you for the opportunity because, you know, I'd, I'd like to teach. I'd like to listen. I'd like to evolve. There you have it. Anyway, tuning in, episode one in the books. Thanks for tuning in.